do me a favour, if you are listening, please hit the subscribe button, like, share, rate, review the podcast. It really means more than you realise. I believe every business owner has a story to tell. Through seeking true, authentic insights about the entrepreneurial journey, I provide a platform for our peers to share their stories and inspire those that listen. This is the County Business Talks podcast, powered by Picture Book Films. Now you show me, you know, how the human body works. I want to be able to fix it. I want to be able to do things to help make people better. And when I said um, to my professor I wanted to be an obstetrician and gynaecologist, he said, well, good luck. Only one in ten women make it. One of the main things I did when I was at Charleston Westminster was set up a program for uh, HIV-positive men to have children safely. During the 90s, treatments started to become available, and we moved from um, patients, you know, coming into hospital to die to actually this was a, a chronic disease and now it is a well-treated disease but I, I, the program was set up in, in sort of 2000, 1999-2000 and it was a lot of criticism people were saying why, why are you helping people like this you know there's a lot of stigma around having yeah, HIV yeah. but I, I knew it was the right thing to do and in fact you know within two years this was an NHS funded treatment you know one in six couples will struggle to conceive and it's a taboo subject you know you can't talk to your friends or your family about it and we saw you go through failure we picked you up off the floor we said it's going to be okay it doesn't always work first time you give people hope where there is any hope Okay, we're live. Guest 23 of 24 I'm in, in the final hurdles. And um, I'm absolutely delighted to be welcomed today by the CEO and medical director from the Agora Clinic, um, Carol Gillingsmith. Carol, thank you for coming in. It's brilliant. It's, it's an absolute pleasure and honour and an honour to be taking part in this wonderful, you know, 24 hours of, of sheer dedication yeah. to, to Rocky Horse. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you. We're going to jump straight in as we have with the other podcast. Just tell, tell the listeners a little bit about your story, your, your career. So um, I am a doctor. I'm, a, I'm an obstetrician and gynecologist, but I never set out to be a doctor. I, I hated the sight of blood. Um, as I was, I was growing up uh, during my childhood, my, my only sibling, my brother, um, spent quite a bit of time in hospital. He was he was born with a heart condition, mm. and hospitals smelt of dettol. They were sad places. They were frightening places. So the last thing I wanted to do was to become a doctor. Um, I wanted to be a scientist. I and I probably wanted to be a teacher, if if anything. Um, and so I went to university to read natural science, and picked a fourth subject. I was I was told by my by supervisor, you know, pick a fourth subject, something you might you might be interested in. And I thought, I don't know, I don't know. So he said, well, try physiology. And in my first term, I studied how the human body works along with chemistry and physics. And, and I was just, it was just, this is it. I've made a complete error here. Um, I, I'm Now you show me, you know, how the human body works. I want to be able to fix it. I want to be able to do things to help make people better. And suddenly, you know, nothing worried me. Um, the smell of hospitals didn't worry me. And, I, and I've had the most amazing career and I've loved uh, every second of it. I, I switched to medicine and um, and then I progressed through my training. And initially I wanted to be a pediatrician, somebody that helps children, six children. Um, I was very impressed. I was working, uh, I, was a, I was a student at Cambridge University and I, and I saw um, Sir, Professor Sir Roy Khan. He was doing liver transplants on children and was exposed to this wonderful world of, of being able to help children. But as I went on the wards and saw sick children, I realized that it just made me incredibly upset to see sick children and some, yeah. some may, never made it. And, and so 
I became an obstetrician and gynecologist. Um, it's the beginning of life. You can make a huge difference and trained um, through 10, 15 years. I, I'm a mother. I have three children. So I managed to complete that training against all odds. Um, when I started out, I, well, I was the first of 16 girls in my school, which was an all boys school. Um, I was the second cohort of girls uh, at Trinity College, Cambridge. And when I said um, to my professor, I wanted to be an obstetrician and gynecologist, he said, well, good luck. Only one in 10 women make it, you know, you'll, you'll go off and have babies. So it was not an easy career to choose, but I was pretty determined. And I trained in London mostly um, at St. Mary's and had some great mentors and qualified as a consultant. And my first job as a consultant was at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital uh, in London. Uh, where I was put in charge of the IVF unit. And that's really where my fertility career really took off. I had already spent the previous 10 years specializing in fertility. I'd done a, a, a PhD on polycystic ovary syndrome. It's a common fertility condition. Uh, women have sort of irregular cycles and fertility issues. And as I, as I headed up this unit in central London, um, it kind of really opened my eyes to what could be done uh, in the world of fertility to not just improve the chances of success, but improve the patient's journey. Um, one of the main things I did when I was at Charleston Westminster was set up a program for uh, HIV positive men to have children safely. So HIV, as you probably remember, was, you know, it was the, it was the mass graves that we saw, the tombstones, it was really, it really came out as, as, a, as a very, very serious condition um, in like 1983 and 1984, and I was just qualifying as a doctor. And during the 90s, treatments started to become available. And we moved from um, patients, you know, coming into hospital to die to actually this was a, a chronic disease and now it is a well-treated disease. Yes. But I, I, I set up the first program, it was called the sperm washing program, and then helped women who are HIV positive. So I had really quite an interest in helping people that would otherwise be turned away. I mean, it was a very, very strange time because the, the program was set up in, in sort of 2000, 1999, 2000, and it was a lot of criticism, People were saying, why, why are you helping people like this? You know, there's a lot of stigma around having yeah, HIV. Yeah, but I, I knew it was the right thing to do. And in fact, you know, within two years, this was an NHS funded treatment. So my career moved on. And I think I looked at what was going on in the NH Trust that I was working in and I couldn't change it. I couldn't change the inefficiencies. I couldn't change the model that was there. Um, personally, I was badly treated on several occasions during my career, um, having had children, you know, and having gone on to maternity leave. I then felt this is the time to break away and with no business training whatsoever, I said, right, I'm going to do this myself. And uh, we had moved out as a family to Sussex and there was no IVF unit in Brighton. and. I, I, I said, I turned around to my father and I said, you've set up a business, can you help me? And I set up the Agora Clinic. Um, the whole project started probably around 2005 and we opened our doors in 2007. That's how it came to be, um, with a woman who had a passion for delivering better care, um, you know, better care for everybody and making that journey that fertility journey um, and experience. And that's still where I see, you know, my, my place, my place as a doctor, um, because I, I practice medicine of the person, which is you're not treating a condition, you're treating the whole person or the couple in my case. And, you know, we, we are t talking about incredibly vulnerable people who are trying to conceive. So a very different sort of model to the one that I left in London, we, we set up quality management systems, we set up patient flows, you know, make, making sure everything was efficient. And we set up a real, a real team of people. We have, we have four teams, really. We have doctors, we have nurses, we have admin staff, and we have scientists. And that team of people 
weren't just doing a job. They were talking all the time to the patients, making that experience very special. I changed the environment because of my fear of hospitals, the whole environment. It was like walking into my living room. I don't know if you remember. I I, I just wanted to make it non-medical in that sense of welcome welcome into my home. We're going to look after you here. You're very special to us. We want to make you feel relaxed and calm, just trust us. You know, we, we will take you on that journey and together we will have a family. Um, and three and a three and a half thousand babies, um, three, 3,500 babies later, <laughs> I'm sitting here talking to one of my patients. Um, uh, I, I didn't actually, I didn't think I'd get so emotional, uh, obviously, because it is, um, it, it, listening to you talk, and, and the experience you talk about the experience and it, it, i can first-hand experience in that and he's exactly that you took me and my wife on a journey you're gonna make me go yeah. to <laughs> no it's it is that it is yeah. it is you see so important to realize um just what it feels like to be a patient and a lot of doctors don't take the time to realize that. And, and in particularly, you know, one in six couples will struggle to conceive and it's a taboo subject. You know, you can't talk to your friends or your family about it. And being able to open up with us and come on that journey was, was, um, was really important. And we do it with everybody. Um, and I remember a lot of those, a lot of those journeys, a lot of those people live with me forever and that and they live with my staff we i'm not different i i've i personally i handpick everyone I, i'm not i'm not joking we have an incredible team of people each a little bit different each offering in a different way the same thing that i that i wanted to offer it's 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 a journey where we need the medicine we need the science we need the evidence base for what we do but if the human factor doesn't come in it it won't be the same and you won't have that memory that you have of you know we we saw you go through failure we yeah. picked you up off the floor we said it's going to be okay yeah. it doesn't always work first time you know i think you just give you give people hope where there isn't any hope actually if you get to that point where it's you know i'd actually got to a point myself where my wife's very tenacious. She wouldn't have ever given up, I don't think. But I'd got to a point where, prior to coming to see, we'd had a, we'd had miscarriages, we'd had an ectopic pregnancy, and after the ectopic, I remember getting to a point of, for me personally, I'd, I'd sort of, I, I was at peace with going, I'm okay not having children. Actually, as long as you're alright and we're alright as a, a couple, I could, I could sort of deal with that. Um, my wife was not. I don't know. I want to be a mother. I've got. And and we talked about it. And and this was a route that we we decided to go down. And 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 you talk again. I, I sort of allude to to the experience. And and you're absolutely right. One, you walk in, and you feel like from the second and every single step of the way, every single person that we spoke to, every step of the way, made us feel welcome. Mate, it, and made us understand and helped talked us through it and and it was just i can only describe it as a magical experience and yet we did go through the first round of ivf that failed and like you said even at that point where just devastating as well especially when you've been through ectopping and and and, and miscarriages and in that first round i remember that my wife was so optimistic about it and i am an optimist so i always think we was going down every, I, I believed that we was going to get there because that's how i'm built i guess i was like i, I believe if we're going to go down it's going to happen and i remember the first time it didn't i said okay we can go again she was so optimistic that first time and it didn't happen and yet like you said if if we touch point every member of staff because one of the questions i've got on here is i talk on a podcast all the time about culture how, how you create a culture within a company within a business and normally you're the, the, the business that you you're still running a business and a business that you run creates miracles and it makes miracles happen and yet 
you've created a culture there within that in your company where like you say and it's so fascinating to listen to you talk about it where you say handpick every person that they've got to fit in with that culture that they can that they can make that experience for people that come through on that journey and i'm really conscious that we're one of the really lucky ones because I'm, i know that i'm sure that there are people that go through that journey that maybe not as as fortunate as, as we are um and and yet knowing that when we went through that failure you were still there to support us at that journey and and take us on to what that next day would be and i'm interested to to know from from your point of view when you started did you have that vision right from the very start that this is how i want it to be yeah yeah i did um there were two things that 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 hurt me a lot in in the NHS environment that I worked in, the first was there wasn't a team culture. There wasn't that um, that drive with everybody working together. You know, when you see you know well-trained players in a football team or rugby team, mm -hmm. they they have the same vision, they share the same values, and they are together. Together they are strong. Not 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 so much individually, mm -hmm. but together they're strong, and they look after each other. And that was not happening. And the second thing that really shifted my, you know, my direction in my career was that for the second time in my life, I came back to work after maternity leave. And basically, I was marginalized. I was moved sideways and my, you know, I, I was the director and there was a threat that I should step down and let somebody else take my role. Uh, the first time it happened to me, I basically was told we're not renewing your contract. I was trying to find a consultant job. You know, I came back after my second child was born. I'm sorry, we're not renewing your contract in the NHS, you know, a, a care and study. So I said to myself, there is no way that I'm working for anybody else. And there is no way that anybody working for me is ever going to experience that. Women, you know, I had a, t a tough career as a woman because I grew up, I grew up, as I said to you in, in the beginning, I said, I grew up in the 60s when you know, women weren't really sort of thought of in the same way as men. And they, and yeah. I, I don't ever regard myself as a woman. I regard myself as a person. So I've never thought of that as an excuse to not do anything. But, you know, I don't want any of my women or female, um, f female staff to ever think they can't have children or do things they want to do that that, that would affect their career. They will be as supported. Uh, and the same goes actually for... The, the guys in my organization yeah. it doesn't matter you know we, we've stopped uh, thinking about maternity leave we talk about paternity leave maternity leave parents leave and, and everybody should be supported to have a good work-life balance so the culture has come from my vision and it has grown I, and i think i did a lot more work on culture about four years ago i got very much into simon sinek and i got yeah. <laughs> i got i got a lot of support at that time and and i sat down with the team and we had a, a vision and values workshop and we talked through our values we we, we rethought them and yeah. i had a new team as well. i mean i had new people in the team um you know w wisdom compassion honesty and a lot of love and those four values are the values that i ask all my team to wear on their sleeve every day and 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 live them because if you live those values it, it creates the right culture and you know look after your yourself look after your friends look after your fellow colleagues look after your patients um and we you know we we definitely have moved a long way from that that one meeting four years ago and i think we have we have a really really strong culture and that doesn't exist in the in the nhs that we see at the moment it's not it's not. It's because there isn't the good leadership that brings the culture into the workplace. In the NHS, is that uh, why is that? Is it because of? Is it because of a funding issue? Is it because of? What, 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 what's, your, what's your take on why, why is that? In the NHS that it's a it's a huge organization yeah, and i do nhs work as you know yeah. so half of our work is nhs funded with the largest um we're the largest provider of ivf in sussex you know by a long way and we do 50 percent nhs funded work and in fact funding for the through the nhs for fertility massively increased last november you know three cycles now not two uh 
LGBT community, same-sex couples, single women now funded for, for donor sperm treatment. So massive, massive shift. But we are a small enough organization for the leader to be heard and for you, for you to be able to create that culture. Um, within the NHS, I never had leadership training. Um, there is some leadership training, but I don't think it is in the same league as the sort of leadership training the big, big companies, you know, big corporates offer. Yeah. Uh, I've I've taken on board my own training. I I've had mentors. I've had a I've had a mentor now for three years, and it, it makes a huge difference to my understanding of how to lead, how to motivate, um, how, how to get growth obviously is an important thing how to develop my team how to develop my individuals in my team to reach mm. their potential to look after them and uh, and i don't see that happening at all and and people now in the nhs it's not a, ma a matter of money there is actually quite a lot of money going into the nhs mm. but it but it is very badly utilized um and it almost needs that it needs to be broken down into smaller pieces yeah. and 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 better leadership training to, to give to give that change in culture that will retain staff. Of course, I'm not going to say that uh, that money isn't important because we are we are not paying our, our healthcare workers, our nurses, our doctors, particularly our junior doctors, anywhere near what they should be paid. So of course, they they go into other jobs or they leave and they 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 go abroad. But we can we can still retain more. Um, the goodwill is there. We we will retain more with better leadership. But I'm, I'm interested as well to, like, like you said about your, your journey and, and going back after maternity leave and having that that negative um, response to that. That is not a thing. Is that obviously we're going back a few years prior to you obviously starting and thing. Do you do you get the sense that's still happening in the NHS or has that changed? I think HR law has improved massively to yeah. protect protect women in the workplace yeah. um, I'm pleased to see that the menopause is being taken seriously yeah. and and uh, you know there's a lot of work around that and it, and recognizing that um, this year <laughs> I have um, embarked on a workplace well-being initiative in in the agora to to really look at ways of improving um, you know how how we do things you know surveying my staff listening to what they're saying looking at ways of making that work-life balance so much better because we spend an enormous amount of time at work and we do need to make work a good place and i think you know the pandemic was a good jolt to us all yeah. that actually you can from home but actually being in there with people is important yeah. we we get a lot uh, there's a lot of camaraderie in my team. I think, you know, you can't underestimate that. Mm. Just making a cup of coffee and chatting, it it, it can make somebody's day. You know, if somebody is if somebody's feeling low, if somebody's having a problem sharing it, you you're not going to share it if you're at home on Zoom calls all day. Yeah. It's it, I think we can't underestimate the importance of making the workplace better for everybody and and bringing people into the workplace. Not, not just isolating them at home. Um, we need to get that shift right. Yeah, I think it, it was it, it was it was a shift that, that needed to happen. I think for like, obviously during COVID, and, and I talk I knew a lot about you know, different workspaces, what they look like, and it's changed some businesses completely. Have gone from having offices to going completely remote and doing it. But I've I've always been a people person, so for me, like human connection involved in the community and being around people was always something i crave and i thrive on i love, I love being a, this has been great being, jumping on zoom and being able to i've got an option i'd much rather sit in front of someone and talk to them than I would on, a, yeah. on a zoom call i think um certainly from loop back to the culture side of stuff like it's so much more difficult, I think, to create that culture. Like, like I said, how do you get them more cooler moments where you just walk up and grab a cup of coffee or something and chat to a colleague and and share or whatever that looks like? You can't, you don't do that if you're sitting at home working from home. And on no, computer, do you? no, and and I think one of the things that that has been good out of of the remote working is that 
for fertility patients being able to do remote consultations has been great because yeah, yeah. we can get you know the couple into the call yeah. even if they're in different workplaces and yeah, yeah. at times that suits them and we can minimize the number of trips and travels the travel cost yeah, yeah. by doing some of the consultations that way but we maintain most of our staff are in and we um and we have we have you know no birthday is missed there is a card for everybody and um, big birthdays are massively celebrated and and we try and get some fun it's an it's an incredibly emotional area to be working so we try and get a bit of fun into the day and 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 we you know where where, where you obviously were successful we we are moving we are moving to some new premises um just uh, just off dyke road uh, in the center wow. of brighton uh, wow. It's been a, it's been a massive project. Um, mm. So we we took on the premises that were formerly owned by the British Pregnancy Advisory Service. So it's right right by the Seven Isles Round, about that sort of area. Mm. It's a lovely building with three floors with a garden, and so all of that all of the last year, my energy and the energy of some amazing people in my team. Uh, I just have to mention them: Paula, Michelle, George, Kerry, um, and my husband, <laughs> my mm. husband Stephen. Um, amazing work actually it's 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 when it when we open i think um people are going to realize that this is this is not just a clinic this is a place where you can be yourself and you can be heard whether you're a member of staff or whether you're a patient and you know i've taken great care to make it as non-clinical as possible in those areas that need to be and as clinical as possible we're probably going to have the purest air in Brighton, in our <laughs> laboratory, um, because we've we've invested huge amounts, um, and uh, we've created a fertility garden, and we want, in fact, past patients to to inspire us and to come with ideas, because we believe that you know there'll be a space there that, when the news isn't so good, you can sit, and you can pause and reflect and process, and when the news is good, you can just look and again pause and reflect and and i think we need that space that sort of outdoor space and yeah. um we want to get our you know our patients to get involved in the planting and the and and the beauty that that garden will bring um it's also a very green project i have to talk about it because i'm a passionate believer that having created so many lovely babies and families we have a, a huge responsibility um to make sure that we let their world be as good as the world we grew up in so it's a green project we've we've i've ripped out all the boilers i've ripped out all the carbon fossil fuels at great cost and put in um everything i can for for this for this to be you know a sustainable environment for thinking of our children Amazing. I, I, I think that for me, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really keen to, I guess, again, share with, with obviously lots of people come in, like my wife and I, obviously trying to start a family completely in the dark around, I guess, the, the related, you know, in relation to fertility, we was really in the dark about that I didn't know much about it. Okay. Did, did, do you feel what's your thoughts around uh, education around fertility and what that looks like? Because I guess, like I said, for, for, for me, I didn't know much about it and, and the IVF process and what that looks like. And, and actually, I think not, not so much even the IVF, but for fertility in general, I think, you know, you, you go into, we got pregnant, we, we actually had, had the twins when we were 36, but we were first pregnant when we, we were 13, we lost. Yeah. Baby, and then thirty-three, and then th six months after that, and then we had a then few years between. But prior to Kelly was absolute, and we were both were, but she really was devastated at that initial stage, just because not had that failure is the wrong word, but at that experience where everything you tried in life, like life has gone along not nicely. So we met at school, she qualified as a lawyer got married we bought a house it was all going and next step well, i'm gonna have a family and got pregnant very quickly and then all of a sudden that was taken away and you like there was just such a lack of knowledge around that like at, 
around the problems that potentially we could have with fertility uh, even age 30 i'm just keen to know i've rambled on a bit but i'm just keen to what's your thoughts around it, education around younger younger generation around fertility well it's it's a subject that, that's very dear to my heart and and it's something that i have been actively trying to promote in 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 as much in as many directions as possible mm. over the last five years so i've got three children um my my oldest you know michelle is 27 she's she she works at the clinic she's 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 joined the clinic and and she she's very important on patient support and and operations and my my youngest is 18 so i have seen the educational system and it utterly fails when it comes to re reproductive learning and 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 there's no reason for it it is outdated and is not is not there's a tiny reference to ivf which which was you know well louise brown is is 1944 you know it's 1978 the first ivf baby in the world was born and there's a small reference to it i think in their gcse and a level syllabus there is a huge amount of learning about how not pregnant and there is nothing about the different ways that you can get pregnant and what to do to avoid becoming infertile when it's probably you know one of the commonest conditions in six people they try to conceive will struggle and they don't tell you that at school so i i've always thought this is this is really nonsense and, and i know that british society you know have done a lot of work around that again and i've worked with them and and i brought into my clinic three years ago i brought into my clinic 20 um, drama students from a local theatre group, um, aged 16 to uh, 21, and I spent. I said, "Spend the day with me. I will teach you about everything." We had real stories, patients. This is. I want to know how we can best, you know, engage with young people, and I want to use you as any pick. Let's try your things out because I don't think classroom teaching works for this subject. It's a, it's an embarrassing subject. It's a taboo subject. How how can you just sit there and talk to somebody in front of a you know I don't know PowerPoint? This is not yeah. the way to do it. Let's do it a different way. So we we gave them some background information. We brought in patients with all sorts of different stories to tell, stories of surrogacy, stories of egg donation, stories of sperm donation, and um, transitioning and freezing eggs, and and, and it was. Then we moved into four different workshops and we tried, you know, writing poems, writing short plays, um, just interactive ways of working and thinking that allowed them to connect. And we made a film, which is which is on our website. And, and it and it was probably all of the students said it was feedback that was immensely important. And this was a really mixed group of kids. All the students was the important thing that had happened to them that none of the PSHE at school that they'd had had been of any value this was what they wanted the girls came out and said my god I didn't realize we had a biological clock I had no idea that the clock starts ticking before we're even born because you're born with you know about a third of the eggs you had uh, 20, 10 weeks before or, or 20 weeks before it's, it's people don't realize that you're losing your eggs every day of your life and the guys don't realize that if you you start to make sperm at puberty and it takes three months to make sperm if you get sozzled every night and you're taking a load of drugs and and you're taking bodybuilding drugs that all damages sperm formation it's and and sometimes long term so i mean i mean i i, I was never never aware so many young men were taking testosterone buying it on the internet to, to look good i mean why shouldn't they 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 don't get told on the internet by the way this could damage your fertility so they take it but it's a huge thing so if we can we need to go into schools and that's what we've started doing uh, I've, I've gone into a lot of schools and we're starting to do as much as we can making films so storytelling is the way to go and interactive discussions is the is the way to engage young people um and it it's 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 slowly the message is getting out there and i've been also doing a lot of talks in the workplace because the whole part of you know the workplace is a great great place to catch people in the lunch hour you know um little workshops little little talks talk a little bit about 
all different types of fertility and how it impacts a man, how it impacts a woman, how they don't want to talk about it, how they might need somebody to listen to them. Yeah. Um, and that's really good. It's helping fertility policies to be put in place so that the workplace supports people through their IVF journey. Um, and also want to go into universities. And I think that's a really good place to start start that conversation. And as you know, as you've probably read, you know, young young women can now freeze their eggs. It's a successful way of, if you like, ensuring potentially, you know, that possibility that you might not be the right person until a bit later in life. So loads loads more work to do. It's um I think it's a lifetime of work there, but it's definitely something we, you know, we are passionate about. It's amazing that and I'll certainly it's uh, really needed. Like I said, I alluded to and you do what we you know you, you talk about a baby and if it, it's just going to happen so quickly and actually mm -hmm. and and like you said i mean we've had how many people have i can't remember what the what the statistics but how many people have have, have that first pregnancy and, and miscarriages and yeah we've got groups of sharing those stories is something that's that's really powerful and but combined with people sharing those stories having that education and, and awareness to back it up which obviously you guys are, are striving to yeah and, and and i'm you know uh, we're making we're making a concerted effort to go out and tell those stories so yeah. thanks thanks to all the patients who have just said look i'd love to tell my story we do ask you know we regularly ask patients would you tell your story because there's somebody out there that that will that will make a big difference to them so you know we've recorded some some wonderful wonderful stories um like it's my older son who does who's my who's a filmmaker who who's doing most of that work and we we put them on our website and just go there because i i honestly believe that hearing another person's story and this is not you know this is not to to promote our clinic this is because because people can see those and they can be you know they can be living across you know the other side of the world telling your story is going to help more than one other person it, it's really about sharing the story because it is a taboo subject it's something that people do not want to talk about they they think it's only happening to them but it isn't and as you said miscarriage 20 percent of all pregnancies confirm miscarriage much higher as you get older as a woman gets older but it's so important to realize you're not on your own yeah, and absolutely. you know yeah i mean it, it's, it's the same with cancer I, I, people know what they say when you say i've got cancer like yeah. my my husband's been living with cancer for 12 years and you you know we've lived through people being embarrassed to talk to us about it or shying yeah. away if only they'd actually just stop and listen and talk it's much easier and the same with you know when you've got a fertility issue you want to you actually do want to share what you're yeah. feeling inside it's much easier if you have some support yeah i completely agree and, and, and like you say just and, and uh, by sharing those stories and, and and hearing from other people that are going through that same thing you, you again I, I always allude to like community once you build that community of people um around it. it's a support network then isn't it and yeah you, you can the same when you know even when you go on and have children like we have got a nice support network now of people who have had kids as well and the kids have got a nice little group in it and community is such an amazing thing but it only happens by people communicating and sharing yeah sharing we've we've created i mean we we felt that a lot and we could a close facebook group agora friends yeah. i don't know how many seven eight hundred followers now and it, and it's and i say to people when you know when when they first join the clinic i said look patient support is massive to us massively important to us you you can't you know you can't do this on your own you've got to let us in first of all trust us but also you know this is how you can communicate with us we've got a, an app now for for the phone and and, and do join our agora friends or follow us on social just just connect to the stories because you know there'll be somebody there that you know you can share your 
your issue with you know this is this is a really private network you're just you're just in here with um often you know people stay on agora friends when they've been successful and they kind of mentor it's a sort of lovely lovely way of just saying don't worry you know i've been there this is what i did and and that's that's very powerful again i guess sometimes those stories give those other people hope if there's yeah again when you if you just come out of a first round that maybe failed ivf and then you know for example they've read our story absolutely it is and i think i think your story is is a classic example you know where you come into it gosh you know you you'd had your miscarriage and you you were you were you know you're in rock bottom place mm -hmm. and you thought now i've got my ticket for ivf that's it we're, we're there and of course one of the worst things about IVF it is one of the most unsuccessful treatments in medicine. I mean, if you go and have a knee operation, they might say, well, there's the 5% chance it might not work. In IVF, we tell our patients, well, there's about a 60% chance it won't work um, if, you're, if you're younger. And, and it might be a 90% chance it doesn't work if you're, you know, in, in, over 40. So you're going into it thinking, this is, this is it. This is my ticket. What? You know, I, 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 I mean, not get there so you know i the thing i say to my patients now is don't think of it as one cycle you're on a treatment program thankfully the nhs in sussex is now following nice guidance and offering three full fresh ivf cycles and free frozen cycles and i say just relax you've got that funding in place just try to realize that it doesn't work first it is because mother nature doesn't make every egg perfect doesn't make every sperm perfect and when they combine together if they're not perfect they may look to us perfect they may be the best of the bunch but if they don't carry on growing or they miscarry that was not one that mother nature had meant to be and you know take it on the chin it's not it's nothing to do with you that that the next the next round you know hopefully will will get a success but statistically if you do three rounds, you should get there, you know, and, and for, for a lot of people that that very much is what happens, very much is what happens. In fact, we've had you know, patients freeze embryos after one round and come back and had two or three children, not like you do at once, but, but you know, and that, they, you know, they've had a whole Agora family from from one round. There are others that have done six rounds and have, you know, and have perhaps not not been successful. So it's it's never nothing's guaranteed. And it's really, really tough when it doesn't work out. Um, and you know, still talk about. I mean, as I said, I, I really understand and appreciate. I guess that we were one of the lucky ones, but I guess for, must be just working in working in the profession as a whole and such an uh, dealing with people's emotions as, as, as you do. And um, how do you, how do you do you how do you switch off? Do, do you switch off or? Uh, because uh, it must be so difficult to be in position and then be able to go home and yeah it's i i i have a confession which is that i never switch off and it, it the nearest i get to switching off is my, you know, on a penning shoot and I, I live in the countryside and, and i love running and uh and listen to music i switch off but it when you've stopped that it's fairly difficult to switch off but i don't mind that People tell me I should switch off, but I don't know that I necessarily should. I, I have that sort of um, emotional connection to everything I do that I, I can't. And and the funny thing is, I I know that a lot of my team would probably say they you know they're they're the same. And I, and I you know, not every day is a good day as 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 a you know as an employee at the Agora. I can tell you. I, I have a lot of my staff over the course of a year, they, there will be staff in tears and they will be in tears because they're sharing the grief of a patient or because the patient has, you know, they're, they're, they're so vulnerable, they're so emotionally distraught, they don't realize they're doing it, but they've taken it out and their anger and their words, they haven't been thought through, have come out and they've been in deeply upsetting to somebody who's been listening or you know taking it 
And, you know, if you've had a bad day and you've had two or three things not go well for, for your you know, patients and somebody does that without realizing, you know, you're, you're at the end of a, of a long 24 hour of podcast, you know, you're, you're tired and, and your vulnerability is, is at that point, you it's huge and you're, you're at your lowest and we're seeing it more and more. And I, and I, you know, I, I'm trying to protect my staff and I'm trying to help them, but I can't protect them from what people will say. And I think, you know, my message out there is if, you know, if you, if you are getting help from any, from anybody, you know, who is, who is in the caring profession, who is a healthcare worker, however angry or bad you feel, there is no good that will come from taking it out on the person who's actually there trying to help. Um, they, they will help you better if you're not, if you're not angry, if you, if you just, uh, you just say how you feel, say how you feel, be honest with yourself, tell them you're angry and ask for help, but, um, but don't shoot them because the damage is, is, I mean, I think a lot of people are leaving the healthcare profession because they're exhausted from, from all this. I can imagine that. And there's a, there's an interview I heard with a, there's a, a guy called Mo Gaudat who's, his own podcast called Slow Mo, and he's a brilliant book called Soul for Happy. But um, he talks about he, so he, his his son died when he was twenty one in a routine operation in um, in, in I was running for There was seven mistakes that were made by the doctors, and and he died. And then, but he there wasn't that anger. He got to a point where there wasn't that anger towards him because he had become a peace. He said that doctor didn't go in that day thinking I'm going to mess up this operation. Well, obviously it was mistakes and whatever, and he, he thought, so made sure that those mistakes didn't then happen. But I think exactly what you're sort of talking about, like any of your staff, anyone, they put all they're doing, uh, anyone been in the medical profession, all that they do is help people. Yeah. And I can I could never understand. I can't even understand that this uh, we have to put signs up to say we won't don't don't, don't abuse don't that. abuse, no. Why why is that why is that message even gonna be there? Yeah. Surely you've you've come into that situation. We, we the whole thing with Rocking Horse and, and the reason because obviously when Luca was born and that's why they saved his life in, in the Royal Alex and he broke his arm on Saturday and we was in hospital on, on, on Saturday night and I was surrounded by these amazing members of staff again that was saving my, like, fixing my son. Yeah. Like, what an amazing thing. And even if things had gone wrong or that, none of those people would have done that. They didn't go in that day to wrong did they they was they're there to help and i just can't i can't comprehend it i listen to you talk about it and i think it's devastating actually to think that we, we have to but of course i understand people's emotions and it's easier to come from a place where like i say i was a lucky one and we, we had a great outcome and i can understand that but even remember that first felt the care and I, I, I spoke about it earlier, but the care at that point as well, where like you said, you're at rock bottom and then you have a fell runner, wherever you go, that little bit lower because you think, oh, like, there's that lack of, but still, there was such care there, but every step and knowing that there was this one didn't work, but there are other options, we can look to other options, and you found the solution, like, yeah, your problem solvers. You, you, there's a, there's a, this is the problem we're going to do knowing that you were going to do your best to solve that problem was yeah and i think it's it's so important to remember that you know uh, yeah we we will hug our patients we will yeah. we will be human beings with our patients and the difference between my clinic and probably 80 percent of clinics in the uk and the world is my clinic is run by a woman who admits to being vulnerable and feels that connection with people. She is, she is the 
100% owner of that clinic. There are no other shareholders. It's my baby. I'm accountable for whatever happens in that clinic. And so it doesn't matter how many patients I see. It, it's not a numbers game to see how the numbers figure out at the end and what the shareholders are going to get, because that doesn't matter at all. Mm. Actually, my priority actually is, is the quality of care because I feel so much happier if I get good feedback, we have the best success rates. We do actually have, we have the best success rates in the Southeast, third best in the UK, but those success rates. But the most important thing is for somebody like you to say to me, you couldn't have done it better. And, and that, that's all we ask for. And that's the difference between these, you know, clinic chains. I mean, the 80% are now clinic chains where the people who invest in the workforce have no idea or no realization of what it's like to be a fertility patient. Yeah. I sit in the clinic every day and I know what it's like. I, I can sit in your shoes and I can see from your face. I think, you know, this is, we're doing it right. We can always do it better. And, and that's part of, you know, the, the quality management improvement, but we are getting it pretty close to right. And we listen, we, we listen to the feedback. We see, sorry, if it hasn't been a hundred percent, we listen to the feedback to try and get it better. So for, what, for whatever reason, something hasn't been done in the best way possible, we take it on board. And, uh, you know, you've got to admit, when you can do something better, you do it. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Okay, well, we're, we're, we're coming towards the end. Uh, you've sort of answered this a little bit anyway, obviously with the new premises, but what, what else does the future hold for you? So we are, it's weird, so we, we're moving to these lovely premises in January. We've opened um, a satellite clinic in Eastbourne and we've got another one in Worthing. So that helps the patients. We've now got a requirement to find egg donors and sperm donors. So we've launched the Brighton Egg Bank and Sperm Bank. Um, the, the real um, th sort of change this year is I've taken a, a, a really big look at a charity work and felt this was the right time for us to mm. to have a, a branch a charity part of of the agora clinic mm. and we've pledged obviously um to sponsor the the rocking horse charity and become partners and aligned with them and, and that's fantastic news also very um very much in parallel but a much much smaller charity become involved with cameron's orphanage which is an orphanage uh in zambia my son went out there in July and it you know it's it's been built in memory of a young boy who tragically died at the age of 21 he was going to be a fighter pilot he tragically died in a flying accident um boy boy who was at school with my daughter whose whose mother then um you know in his in his legacy has founded this orphanage so we we're sponsoring I'm sponsoring a child the clink sponsoring a child we're going to try and improve the medical facilities and it's a very small charity but it's, again it's about you know we, we we try to to make children happen for parents um and make their dreams come true and the way i see it with with this little orphanage is here are children without parents and we want to make their dreams come true they they would never have a chance but let's give them what we can to make their lives as as brilliant as possible so uh, yeah moving more moving more into to, to getting involved with charity work as well amazing amazing I just want to, before, before we stop actually, uh, there's one other question, uh, it's so amazing to see and chat to you and listen and uh, I'm wondering what, like, uh, from, from a young age of you, because you obviously like listening to you talk and what you've created and how much you want to help people, uh, uh, does that come up from a young age, you've always been like that or because you, like, with the charity work you're talking about, but like I said, with the, just setting up the Agora as, as a whole and just the nature of, of the way you, you talk and, and the ethos of the, of the whole clinic and, and the culture that you've created, that you're just there and you can, you genuinely feel that you just want to, just want to help people. I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm incredibly fortunate to have had two amazing parents um, and being surrounded by that love from Dot and 
they you know they they just wanted my brother and I to to have the best childhood they they worked hard they they put everything into giving us the best opportunities and I just wanted to make the best of those opportunities and give that same love out to my family you know to my patients to my team and 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 I've never thought about it nobody's ever sort of asked me why I am who I am but that that has to be where it all stemmed from if I if I'd had an unhappy childhood I think I might have been an angry person but I had mm. I'm very blessed um very blessed and uh, I I never saw myself as wanting to help people as a child as I, said, I never thought of myself wanting to be a doctor but when I see people in trouble it it just I just want to run and help and I guess a lot of us are like that I just have now got the yeah. tools having trained to be a doctor I have the tools to do it quite well so yeah. I use those tools those tools that I was given Love that. we're gonna finish up I'll finish up as I've done with every episode with the with the same four quick fire questions so and um, first one what, what one piece of advice would you give to your 18 year old self I think my my advice to myself at 18 would be don't worry about your imperfections. Don't worry about not being good enough. Be bold with your dreams. Take risks and just go for it. Don't hold back. Um, who's been the biggest inspiration throughout your life and why? So I, I have to say it was a toss up between my mother and father, but it's, it's down to my mother because, you know, she she devoted her life to both her work and to her family and she managed to juggle the two beautifully at a time when it wasn't actually very common for women to be to work so she was a teacher she taught physics and chemistry at the french lycee in london and she you know she she raised us um and made time for us she would mark you know all the all the papers that she had to mark in the middle of the night to give us the time we needed before we went to bed and to, you know, to make sure that our studies were, were done, that we had time to talk to. So we talked a lot, you know, the family and the ability to give that love and, you know, to her children and to her pupils and to her work was something that inspired me to, to try and do the same. Um, could, could you recommend a book or a podcast that you've listened to that's had an impact on, on you? There's quite a few, but I will stick to one. Um, Dare to Lead, Brene Brown's work. And a lot of Brene Brown's work is, for me, very inspirational. I've just I've discovered her late in my life, um, but she does have great podcasts. And it's, it's, it's about the power of vulnerability um, and how to be a great leader you know, to to really focus on on harnessing the fact that out of vulnerability, you get human connection, you get joy, you get sadness, you get you know it's being it's being able to to see um, and admit when you're wrong, to be able to reset when things have gone horribly wrong, to be able to reset and just plow on really, um, and to you know, to, to build a trust in your, to build a trust in your team. A lot of the, a lot of her teaching is, I think, incredibly important for all leaders. And I, I wish I discovered her sooner. That's yeah. what, and I would just say, just, just type in Brenny Brown. There's so much to, there's so much there, but yeah. yeah. Amazing. Um, awesome. Well, look, finally, last one. What, what is your one rule for living a fulfilled life? You get up in the morning, and you pledge to make every second, every minute, every hour count. And to bed at night, you take five minutes out to pause and reflect and focus on the best bits of your day. And be blessed. Th say thank you. Focus on those and you'll have a really good night's sleep. And try not to dwell on those bits that inevitably have churned you up and made you feel bad. But, you know, it's, it's, we don't know about tomorrow. We just need to make sure that we remember the good things in each day and, and live them. 
wonderful way to finish. Um, cool. I, I, I'm so grateful when you emailed back. Such a lovely email back as well when, when I asked you to, to, to come on the podcast and, and you know, introduce your family. Like you were saying that it, it is a real family business for you. Obviously, you're all working there and your son filming and stuff, which is it's truly amazing. I guess um, it's been so wonderful talking to you. It really has. Thank you for your time and coming on. But I guess like, without me, without me going again, I think just from me and my family, I'm, I've got a family because of you. So very grateful for that. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm I'm just um, I'm just loving to hear your story. I I think we need to get my son to come and film you, and yeah. with 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 the twins, I yeah, think it absolutely. will be a really powerful story. Yeah, thank you. This is this has been amazing. So thank you for coming on, and uh, yeah, um, that is a wrap, as they say. Yeah, thank you. Amazing. Well,